0: You may be familiar with the story of Louis Zamperini, the American Olympic hero. He became a soldier in World War II. Uh, His plane crashed, and after a month and a half at sea on a raft, they were taken captive by the Japanese military. Uh, His biographer writes that Zamperini was first held in a filthy cell, subjected to medical experiments, starved, beaten, and interrogated. Then he was shipped to prison camp in Japan where he was forced to race against Japanese runners, winning, even though he knew he'd be clubbed as punishment. He joined a daring POW underground, stealing food and circulating information to other captives. It was in prison camp that Louis encountered a monstrous guard known as the Bird. Fixated on breaking the famous Olympian, the Bird beat Louis relentlessly and forced him to do slave labor. When the atomic bombs ended the war, the bird fled to escape war crimes trials, and Louis was saved from almost certain death. Louis went home a deeply haunted man. He spent several years dealing with flashbacks, alcoholism, even planning to return to Japan for revenge against his former captors. But... In part through the ministry of Billy Graham, God saved Zamperini. He returned to Japan a year later and met with many of his former captors who were now in jail for war crimes. But rather than seeking their harm, Zamperini had forgiven them. His biographer writes Louis was struck with emotion. He was surprised by what he felt. It was not hatred, not relief. It was compassion. Louis had found forgiveness. Zamperini's faith and understanding of God's forgiveness had changed his perspective towards those who had sought to do him harm. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3, if you would. If you're using one of the church Bibles, you can find that on page 984, page 984. We're going to set our focus on Colossians 3, verses 12 through 14 today, but I want us to read all of verses 1 through 17 together. The book of Colossians is a letter letter written by the Apostle Paul to the Christian church there in the city of Colossae. The first two chapters of the letter are focused on God's redemptive work in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is preeminent in everything. The world was created in, by, for, and through Jesus Christ. God has reconciled all things in Jesus uh, through his death and resurrection. And whoever sets their faith in Jesus is joined to him in his death and resurrection. And so as Paul transitions um, to practical living in Colossians 3 and 4, it is all based on who Jesus is and what he's done. And we see this in chapter 3 beginning in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So, if you've been raised with Christ by faith and if you have believed in him, then you are raised with him by faith, Uh, then, based on that faith, based on being raised with Christ, then seek the things of Christ's kingdom. If you're a citizen of heaven, then live like a citizen of heaven. As you live this life, remember who you are and live as who you are, a child of God. And then Paul lays out some very practical instructions, vices to abandon and virtues to put on. So first there are two lists of vices. We see that beginning in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So put off sin, put off unrighteousness, take off those old clothes you used to wear when you were part of the kingdom of darkness. Instead, what we'll see this week is that you're to put on clothes that are consistent with the kingdom of light, consistent with the kingdom of God's beloved son. So the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at these vices that we're to put to death, to put off, and this week we'll see what God calls us to put on, verse 12. Put on then. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we praise you for your glorious splendor and your majesty. You've poured out your rain on the earth and we've been reminded of your goodness, how you care for the just and unjust, how you provide and give. Everything we have is a gift from you and so we praise you that you care for us. Lord, we praise you for your grace and mercy that you have revealed in your son. How he came and lived for us and suffered for us and died for us. So that we could be reconciled to you. So that he could reconcile all things in himself to establish his kingdom. And Lord, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Christ, may we live like citizens. May we put away sin in our lives when we put it to death, when we put off unrighteousness, and help us to put on the righteousness of Christ, help us to become like Jesus Christ, so that you would be honored and glorified and exalted. Father, there are many people in our church dealing with various kinds of sickness or physical challenges and pain, and I pray that you would bring healing for those who are in pain, that you would relieve their pain. Where surgery is needed, that you would grant success. Where treatment is needed, that the right treatment would be provided. That you would grant rest. That you would give hope in the midst of these trials. You would help people to see your face and to find joy in you, even in the midst of the physical ailments they're dealing with i want to pray for the family of people who are dealing with sickness, that they would love and care for them. I pray for us as a church family, that we would build each other up, that we would help each other and love each other. Lord, today, as we look at your word, help us to understand it, to apply it to our hearts so that we would become more like Christ. And Lord, we know that there are some in this room who do not know you, who have never come to a knowledge of the truth, who have never seen their sin never understood their rebellion against you, and we ask that even this morning that you would open their hearts, open their eyes, open their minds, and help them to see the glory of Jesus Christ, the one who died and rose again, the one who offers eternal life to everyone who trusts in him. Lord, give us great joy together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We are to... Put off unrighteousness and put on righteousness. As my friend Charles Gibson liked to say, take off the grave clothes and put on the grace clothes. We are to put away worldliness and put on Christlikeness. That's the overarching theme of our section today. Put on Christlikeness. Put on Christlikeness. Put on Christlikeness. And we'll see this call to Christlikeness from three different angles. The first main point, Put on a Christ like perspective toward each other. Put on a Christ like perspective toward each other. Verse 12, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. The first thing we need to remember is who Paul is speaking to here. Everything we put on is based on our identity as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And identifying these Colossian Christians as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, that that was standard ways of referring to God's people in the Old Testament. Chosen, holy, beloved. Throughout the Old Testament, God is reminding his people that they were his, not because of anything impressive about them, but because he chose them. And that same reality is true in the New Testament as well. We could look at any number of Old Testament passages, but we'll just choose Deuteronomy 7 as a representative text. If you would turn there, it's the fifth book in your Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy means second law. It was Moses' consolidation of the law uh, that he's reteaching to Israel right before they enter the promised land. So in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, we read this. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Deuteronomy 7, verse 7, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of the Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Verse 9, know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with the one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. So God loves his people. He chose his people in love. They're his treasured possession. God keeps covenant, his steadfast love. And God's people are holy, that is, they are set apart to the Lord for his purposes. And it is because of God's love, because of God's choosing, because God made his people holy, therefore they are to obey him. We'll turn back to Colossians, if you would. In the, in the Old Testament, God almost singularly speaks of the nation of Israel in this way. In the New Testament, God speaks of the church in this way. Uh, Romans 1.7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, or 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people called for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And of course, in our passage today, Paul is speaking to God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Now, prior to Christ, most of us here would be considered outside of the covenant. We do have a few people in our church who are of Jewish heritage. The rest of us were outsiders. We were outside of the covenant of grace, but in Christ God speaks to us with that same language that he used in the Old Testament of his people, chosen, holy, and beloved. In the Old Testament, God primarily chose those people from one nation, the nation of Israel. In the New Covenant, God elects people from all nations, all peoples. Christ unites all things in himself, things in heaven, things on earth, making peace by the blood of the cross. We who were not a people are now a people. We are the people of Christ. And it is a really powerful truth to understand that God chose us. Salvation is not because of any good in us, not because of any good works that we have done or will do, not because of any good or positive trait in us. We were rebels against God. We were opposed to God, but God chose us in love. Ephesians one four teaches that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the earth. Before we even existed, God chose us in love. And then within our life, God opened our hearts to the gospel and we believed. And Charles Spurgeon is quoted as saying that the entrance to the kingdom of heaven is imprinted with the words from Revelation, whosoever will may come. And as the gospel is offered freely to anyone who hears, Anyone who hears the gospel and respo- respo- responds in repentant faith is saved. But once you enter the kingdom of heaven and look back, on the other side the sign says, Chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And what we see from God's inspired word is that we're not merely saved because we figured things out, because we were smarter than other people, and so we accepted the gospel. But, in fact, God chose us from eternity past and brought us to saving faith through the work of the Spirit. God chose us for salvation. And what a gracious God we serve, that he would choose rebels and sinners like us as objects of his mercy. Well, this reminder that we're God's chosen people, holy and beloved, is coming directly after Paul's teaching that in Christ there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So our, de- our identity is not fundamentally in our human backstory, our race or ethnicity or nationality or social class or economic class. Our identity is more fundamentally in Christ himself. And as a cross-cultural people, there are going to be things about us that are very different from other people in our church. But if we'll keep our focus on Christ, then all those things that are different about us, we are able to overcome and love each other in the midst of. So we're God's chosen people, chosen in Christ, chosen in love, loved by God. And because these things are true of us, we are called here to put on these virtues that address a Christ-like perspective toward one another. Put on righteousness put on christ likeness these attributes these heart attitudes are what jesus christ demonstrated in his own life on earth so we've put off the old self we have put on the new self which is christ himself and if we have put on christ then we must put on the virtues of christ as those chosen by god we should put on the attributes of god We have this new identity in Christ, but as Douglas Moo says, this identity, while given in Christ, must also be achieved in practice. So what would it look like to put on Christ-likeness? First, put on compassionate hearts and kindness. Put on compassionate hearts and kindness. The idea of compassionate hearts is heartfelt compassion, tender-hearted mercy. Compassion is truly caring about others, caring about their suffering, about their pain, about their concerns, about their feelings, being concerned about other people's needs. A compassionate person sees another person in need, whether physical or financial or emotional, spiritual, whatever, and pursues helping that person. This is how a parent should view their children, This is how God views us as his children, Psalm 103. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Kindness is connected with goodness. David Garland defines kindness as a gracious sensitivity toward others that is triggered by genuine care for their feelings and desires. Being concerned for others and doing good for them. In Matthew 9.36, we see of Jesus, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus was compassionate and kind, and we should be compassionate and kind like him. Now, the focus of this section is our relationship to the family of God, our relationship to the church. Do we show compassion and kindness in the church? There are many other areas of application we could make, but the key point is being kind and compassionate towards the people of God. And that's relatively easy to do when we all think and act the same. It's a little harder when we do not think and act the same. So consider the last time you had a conversation with someone who profoundly disagreed with you on some issue, uh, perhaps doctrinal, perhaps personal, political, practical, Would you say that you were kind in that conversation? Would they say, maybe we should ask, that you were kind in that conversation? Can you disagree with others in ways that are kind? Are you proactively kind? Do you pursue kindness in how you relate to others? Consider someone who's battling sin or maybe even some unbelief, someone struggling to overcome a challenge in their life. Do you look down on that person or or do you see them as someone who needs help and someone that you could offer help to? Kids, maybe you know someone that is hard to get along with. Maybe they're a little different than you or maybe they're just a little different. Maybe they've been unkind to you. Well, the right thing to do is to be compassionate and kind to them, even if that comes at a cost. So put on compassionate hearts and kindness next put on humility and meekness put on humility and meekness humility is the opposite of pride or arrogance rather than seeing yourself as better than others and probably better than you are humility views yourself rightly in relation to god first of all and in relation to others second of all humility values others over yourself considers the needs and interests of others over yourself David Garland comments that humility allows us to serve others without caring whether it is noticed or not. Meekness, or or sometimes this is translated gentleness, is power under control. One writer calls this the quality of not being overly impressed by the essence of one's self-importance, the willingness to make allowance for others. It is not an inability to respond to injury, but a willingness to be injured rather than to injure. In the midst of conflict, a meek person can disagree and even potentially constructively criticize the other person in a way that is understood by the other person to be a help and not condemnation. Jesus is the ultimate example of humility and meekness. Jesus actually declared this to be true of himself, and then he demonstrated it in his life and death. Matthew 11 Take my yoke upon me upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light Jesus is humble and gentle Or if you would turn just a few pages to to the left in your bibles to Philippians chapter 2 Philippians is the book right before Colossians Philippians chapter 2 beginning in verse 3. Philippians 2, verse 3, God's Word says, "...do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus." who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Son of God demonstrated true humility and meekness in coming to earth. He considered the needs of others more important than his own, He emptied himself, he took the form of a servant, he became a man, he was obedient to his Father, and he died on a cross for sinners like me and sinners like you. And if you're still there in Philippians, we see this is exactly why Jesus now is granted all power and authority and honor. Verse 9, therefore, God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God's ways upend the ways of the world. Jesus was exalted because he humbled himself. And now every knee must bow. And every tongue must confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the question for you is, do you confess Jesus Christ is Lord? Have you bowed the knee before King Jesus? And if you have, will you put on humility and meekness like your Lord did before you? Brian Wilkerson kind of sums up this humility and meekness with a series of promises to do the humble and meek thing. If there is a job that no one wants, I'll do that job. If there's a kid no one wants to eat lunch with, I'll eat with that kid. If there's a piece of toast that's burnt, I'll eat that piece of toast. If there's a parking space that's far away, I'll take that spot. If there's a hardship someone has to endure, I'll take that hardship. If there's a sacrifice someone has to make, I will make that sacrifice. Especially within the church, where many cultures are supposed to come together, humility is vital. We often uh, tend to interpret our own culture as right and good, and thus we pridefully look down on the beliefs and aspects of culture that are different from ours. But humility recognizes that while These differences are real and may be relevant. They do not define us. Humility recognizes that various cultures have both strengths and weaknesses, including our own. Humility says, I'm not better than these other people. I'm not better than this other person. So put on humility and meekness. Next, put on patience. Put on patience. Patience is the ability to wait without getting tired of waiting. Not getting quickly angry at offense. Wading through irritation without getting irritated. Being long suffering. And we are to put on patience toward each other. I'm not quick to judge. I'm not quick to get upset. I don't let our differences bother me. I'm patient towards you and you're patient towards me. Consider that person who does things that get on your nerves. Every day you see them. You call him husband. Are you, are you quick to blow up at this person? Or are you patient with him? God expresses patience toward his sinful creatures, and we likewise should express patience towards each other. How do you deal with that person who's taking forever to figure things out? You solved this problem a long time ago, and they're still struggling with it get with the program. Or when you don't understand something and you think they just need to hurry up and explain it better. Consider in your life all the ways that you have grown and changed and how long for some of those it took you to get there. God has been very patient with you. And if God has been patient with you, you can be patient with others. Put on then as God's chosen ones holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. This is not an exhaustive list of Christian character. It is a representative list of what Christian people should be like. I thought it might help just to give one example, kind of putting all of these together. I think probably the best example is the parable of the Good Samaritan. You're probably familiar with the story, Luke 10. A religious man asked, what must be done to inherit eternal life? And Jesus turned the question back to him. And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus replied that he had answered correctly, do this and you will live. But, of course, we're not capable of loving God with all of our being or loving our neighbor as ourself. And so this man wanted to justify himself. And so he said, who is my neighbor? And so Jesus told this parable. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side side so likewise a levite when he came to the place and saw him passed by on the other side but a samaritan and you need to know the samaritans were despised by the jews so this person they despise he shows up as he journeyed he came to where he was and when he saw him he had compassion he went to him and bound up his wounds pouring on oil and wine Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So if a man in great peril In great need, his life is in the balance. And the Samaritan, this hated man, sees him, and he has compassion. And at great risk to his own life, he demonstrates kindness. and humility and meekness, he gives of himself to care for this man that he doesn't even know and will probably never see again. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. If you're visiting today and you're not a Christian, this passage may seem to express exactly what you've been told about Christianity that is just a list of do's and don'ts. To be a Christian, you must do these things and you don't do those things. Got the list right in front of you. But the reality is that this passage is not giving us a list of what you have to do to be a Christian. God's Word is actually teaching us the exact opposite. We are not Christians because we do certain things and don't do other things, we do what pleases God, we reject what God hates, because we are Christians. All of these commands that we see here are based on this reality that we already belong to Jesus Christ. These commands are given to those who are chosen by God, holy and beloved. It's not that we're trying to become like Jesus so that we can be saved, No, because we have been saved by Jesus, we want to be like him. None of us could ever do all of these things. Jesus has demonstrated perfect righteousness in our place. And so we are redeemed, we are forgiven, we are reconciled to God, not by doing a list of things, but by faith in Jesus. And so if you're here this morning wondering how do I become a Christian is not by following this list. Your task is not to begin obeying a set of virtues. Your duty is to respond to Jesus Christ. You have to set your faith in Jesus Christ as the one who is righteous, the only one who is truly righteous, and who lived and who died and who rose again for sinners like us. Trust in Jesus who suffered for sinners like you and like me, so that we could be set free. Second main point, put on a Christ-like response to offense. Put on a Christ-like response to offense. Verse 13, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So those first five virtues or positive heart attitudes Um, that we have to have in general towards each other. In verse 13, we're being taught how to respond to offense. And we see two different aspects to a Christ-like response, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. So first, bear with one another. Bearing with one another is enduring offense without retaliation, accepting irritation without annoyance, being confronted without becoming provoked. Now, as I've already said, the church is a mix of people from various ethnicities, cultures, backgrounds, perspectives. And what we have in common is Christ, which means there's a whole lot of other things that we don't necessarily have in common. And we may not always think that others have opinions that are reasonable or respectable or biblical. And yet we can still bear with one another, even when we disagree. There may be. Things that other people do that you find very annoying. They are not the way you do it. And yet we can bear with people who do things differently than we would prefer. And maybe people in the church have done things that are offensive to you. How do we deal with offense? Do we get angry? Do we just walk away? Hopefully, we bear with one another. Our love for Christ... And therefore, our mutual love for one another are more important than our differences, our annoyances, our offenses. And so we are willing to bear with one another. In 1 Corinthians 6, the church has been bringing lawsuits against each other in the secular court. And Paul says this is shameful for the church. The very fact that they ended up in court is already a defeat. He says, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Bearing with one another is a willingness to suffer at the hands of others and to absorb that offense without lashing out at the offender. The church is a family. And like a family, there are many things that we love about each other. And like a family, there are sometimes things we wish might be different about each other. But just, to, just like you don't kick out that weird uncle just because he's a little odd, We don't exclude exclude people from our fellowship just because they're different. I just want to go ahead and say, I appreciate that y'all let me stick around. Now, there is a second way that we respond to offense with Christ-likeness, and that is forgive each other. Forgive each other. Middle verse 13, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. Forgiveness is an act of grace to release the debt of someone's sin against you. Uh, When someone sins against us, our tendency is that we want to meditate on their sin against us. Uh, We want to shove it in their face and remind them about it. And we want to punish them in how we treat them. And forgiveness is a promise not to do any of those things. Forgiveness is a promise not to dwell on the sin against you. Not to use it to harm the person and not to let it affect the way you treat them. Forgiveness is a promise not to dwell on the sin against you, not to use it to harm the person, and not to let it affect the way you treat them. Now, as you're probably aware, forgiveness is a very difficult promise to keep. Notice the instruction here is not based on anything about the person who created the offense. Your forgiveness is not dependent on the person who sinned against you. The only stipulation is that you have a complaint against another person. And if you do have a complaint against another person, Paul says you are to forgive them. Now, in Matthew 18 and Luke 17, Jesus teaches disciples to call a sinning brother to repentance and to forgive them when they repent, no matter how many times they sin against you. The disciples are shocked by this teaching. The instruction in our text doesn't wait for the brother to repent. It simply calls for forgiveness. If you have a complaint against another, forgive him or her. So if you're the one who offended, then you should ask for forgiveness. And if you're the one who has been offended, you are to forgive whether forgiveness is ever requested or not. And verse 13 ends with, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Forgive as you have been forgiven. This is really a gospel issue. If we really understand the gospel, we will understand how much we, will be, how much we have been forgiven, and we will therefore be forgiving people ourselves. If you have time later today, go to Matthew 18, read the parable of the unforgiving servant the basic idea is that one servant owes many lifetimes worth of debt to his master, a debt he could never conceive of beginning to repay, but his master forgives him the debt. And the servant leaves and he finds a fellow servant who owes him 100 days worth of debt, but he won't forgive that fellow servant. And the master finds out and he says you wicked servant and he hands him over to the torturers until he repays all the debt we have been forgiven immensely by our god all our sins are forgiven if you're in christ every sin is forgiven consider your life consider all the times that you know you have sinned against god Consider all the ways that you've probably sinned against God without even realizing it. You never asked God for forgiveness for those sins. And if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, every single one of those sins is forgiven, covered by the blood of Jesus. And if we have so been forgiven for all our sin, we likewise ought to forgive all the sins that others commit against us. We forgive because we have been forgiven And we forgive as we have been forgiven. God's forgiveness is not half-hearted and half-way, and ours should not be either. We are to be quick to forgive and to forgive in completeness. So, put on a Christ-like response to offense. Final point, put on Christ-like love. Put on Christ-like love. Verse 14, and above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So love is the overarching principle that connects all these virtues and that unites God's people. Love is the overarching principle that connects all these virtues and unites God's people. It's not that we have a checklist of things to do and love is the final item in the checklist. No, love is the virtue that fills in all these other virtues. We do all these things because of God's love for us and our resulting love for one another. In fact, if you were going to try to describe genuine love and what that's like, you would probably use many of the virtues that Paul has already listed out for us in our text. You would probably say something like, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Well, as with all of these virtues, Jesus Christ is the supreme example of love. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus laid down his life for his friends. Jesus died so that you and I can be forgiven of our sin. He died so that we could be united to him in his death and resurrection. Jesus died to reconcile us to God. Jesus died because he loved us. And he calls us to love one another. This kind of love is costly. Love that is compassionate and kind. Love that is humble and meek. Love that is patient. Love that bears with and forgives others. That love will cost us. Because it means you don't always get what you want. And sometimes you don't even get what you deserve. But that is exactly the kind of love that Jesus gave to his people. Where he gave up what was rightly his in order to earn something more. And if we as a church put on this kind of Christ-like love, it will transform how we relate to one another. You know, Jesus didn't say the world would know we are his disciples by our doctrine. The world would know we are disciples by our Sunday school programs. The world would know we are disciples by our singing. Or The world would know we're his disciples by our preaching. Now Jesus said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Put on Christ's like love. I have a friend that I've tried to encourage to have this kind of character, this kind of heart attitude and Frankly, he doesn't believe it's realistic or even right. He, say, uh, he says, a man who reacts like that is just milk milquetoast. A man who doesn't stand up for himself is weak, a wimp, not even a man. The world will eat you up if you act like that. People will walk all over you. And it is true that people may walk all over you if you act like Jesus. But it is absolutely False to say that acting like this makes you less of a man. No one was more of a man than Jesus. No one was more fully human in what it means to be human than Jesus. And this is how Jesus lived. To be like Jesus is to be fully human, fully in the image of God. Being like Jesus is what God made us to be. The world may mock you, the world may take advantage of you, but this is how God calls us to love one another. Everything in this passage is based on being raised with Christ by faith. Laws do not produce these virtues. As David Garland notes, a tree does not produce fruit by an act of Congress. It is the nature of a good fruit tree to produce fruit. Or as the farmer said, what comes up in the bucket is usually what's down in the well. If you are raised with Christ, then you want to live for Christ. And you want to become like Christ. So if you are raised with Christ, put on Christ-likeness. And when you fail, when you fall short, when you sin... Far worse than anyone sins against you, look to Christ. Christ was Christ-like in all the ways that you fail to be Christ-like. He is our righteousness. So look to him. If you are raised with Christ, put on Christ-likeness. Let's pray together. Jesus Christ, we praise you that you are worthy that you're the true example of righteousness, that you always loved God, the Father, that you always loved your people in exactly the ways that it means to love, that you were patient and kind and meek and humble and gentle, that you bear with us, that you forgive us, you have accomplished forgiveness for us you've accomplished redemption for us and so we praise you that you were willing and worthy and able lord we pray that you'd help us to become more like you help us to be quick to put away sin help us to pursue righteousness help us to pursue becoming like jesus christ May we go out this week and love one another. May we be faithful to make your name known. In Jesus' name.